All right. Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. I am Isaiah Henkel. Very excited for today. We're talking about onboarding. This is the first radio show we've dedicated solely to this topic. It's something that you might be thinking, wait, I haven't even transitioned into industry. I have no experience in industry. I'm struggling at the resume stage. That's okay because once you get hired, once you follow the sequence that, that we teach through our radio shows, through our programs, you will get hired and then you're going to have another panic moment where you're like, wait, I have no idea what to expect. I've been in academia my whole life. How do I onboard? Once you onboard, you have to understand in a sense that you are bringing very little value to the company because you're not trained yet. So how do you tip the scales and gain leverage by getting trained, by going through that onboarding process so the company sees you as valuable? Now, of course, depending on the country where you're getting hired, uh, a lot of positions have a probationary period, right, where they're evaluating you pretty closely. So it's almost like you're going through a second 90-day, 100-day uh, interview. And they just want to make sure that you're going through the steps that are required for you to start adding value to the role that you got hired into. I have two very special guests that are coming on today. One is Don Asher. He's written uh, entire books on onboarding. He has a great three-part structure that he was talking to me about uh, very recently that'll help you understand uh, what are the phases of onboarding that you will go through as a job candidate. Uh, we're going to bring him on after the show me the data section. Uh, then we're going to bring on Michael Watkins, another uh, best-selling author who has written books about what to do specifically during your first 90 days as a job candidate. So an action-packed show today. Very excited to have all of you on. I wanted to give you a little bit of insight into what it's like as a PhD to transition into your first job, especially if you have no industry experience. It's quite a bit different. And it's something that you don't think about until you get hired for most PhDs. We're so focused on making that good first impression, going to interviews, getting interviews in the first place, negotiating and getting hired that once we sign, we feel this uh, excitement and a sense of gratitude and this new step, we're going through this new phase, but then again, that moment of panic sets in, what do I need to do? And we feel like we are free falling a little bit because we don't know what our metrics of success are. How are the employers going to be evaluating us? Now, if you did your job during the interview process, you asked questions that would help you understand what success looked like in that role, how they're going to be measuring your success, but still, it's, it can be a black box. So we're, we're going to demystify the onboarding process, demystify what you need to focus on as a, a new hire during the first few months during that onboarding process at a company. Uh, and what this requires, of course, is looking at it from your audience's perspective, the employer's perspective. What do they want to see out of you? What are some initial things you can do to show that you're a leader? What are some initial things to do where they can say yes right away, this was a great hire? right? And, and, and avoid somebody seeing you really not taking to the job, not hitting the ground running, not learning, not integrating into the culture. And as a result, watching you closely, becoming concerned, and then really, you know, maybe writing you out, having to do extra reviews, et cetera. That's what you want to avoid. And, and we're going to talk about that. We've had a lot of PhDs come to us after getting hired and, and say, you know, I'm hired now. I don't have any industry experience. I don't know what to expect. And then we follow up with these PhDs. And a lot of you, if you're in our Cheeky Scientist Association, you see us do spotlights of these PhDs several months after they're employed. And you can see a lot of shifts uh, in them. What are some of these shifts? One of the biggest ones is in terms of project management. So a big part of the onboarding process is understanding how the company operates, how they work, how they measure success, how they get things done. 
And it's very different in most cases to how things get done in academia. In academia, very, you know, very often you're creating knowledge for the sake of knowledge. It's a lot more exploratory, planning. You maybe you don't even really keep track of budgets that closely. Uh, you just always operate as if you have no budget because there's very little money in academia. Uh, you don't manage the time as effectively milestones. There's not traditional project managers within a department or an organization. And so one thing we hear over and over again is it's amazing how much you can get done when you have a team aligned and a, a more strict project management process. Uh, there's different software programs that people tell us about that are used. Uh, every every company is different. But the idea of working with a team where everybody's working on a shared goal and they're moving in unison, you know, better at some companies than others, is, is something we hear over and over again. So a big part of the onboarding process is to help you get to that point where you're able to get things done on your own, but also with a team, and you can get very large things done quickly at a company. And, and a lot of PhDs get great joy from this. And it's something uh, that definitely changes after getting hired during that onboarding process. So before in academia, you're used to things getting done a certain way. You're used to not having a lot of feedback. You, you Maybe you meet for a lab meeting once a week, maybe meet with your PI once a week or once a month, uh, you know, with a professor, your advisor, whoever it is. And again, it's more exploratory. They're not saying, you know, here's our goal and then creating a plan for exactly how to get there. Uh, and, and certainly not with a team in most cases. Everybody kind of has their own project. Um, this is something that changes uh, once you get into industry. And so when you onboard, you got to fit yourself into that team. You got to become more capable on your own, but also more capable with the team with the goal of completing projects better, faster, below budget, and so forth. Uh, so again, I'm, ex I'm excited for all of you who are interviewing right now. Who are, who are entertaining multiple job offers, who are about to transition into your first industry job because that point of joy is coming. Your life is going to get a lot more exciting and easier in one sense. You're getting more done, but it's easier because there is a more structured process and fitting yourself into that structure in, in a good way where you still have your, your independence, but you can work as a team is again, uh, what it means to onboard correctly. But we're going to dive into this. We're going to talk to our, our best-selling authors today, and we're going to go through a show me the data section uh, here now. I do want to mention two things to those of you watching the live stream. We have a very special webinar tomorrow on LinkedIn. So if you're trying to get that first job here, you should be able to see my screen. Today's the last day to sign up for this webinar, 12 LinkedIn strategies for getting PhDs hired. I'm going to cover a lot of new features that LinkedIn has recently unveiled including taking actual tests and exams for the skills that you're trying to get endorsed. So before you could just put any skill on LinkedIn. Now you can take a test for certain skills and, and thereby verify that the fact that you have those skills. That's just one small thing. There's a lot of other things we're going to cover. Uh, if you still don't have your recruiter button turned on, et cetera, sign up for this. The webinar is tomorrow, November 14th at 1 p.m. and 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. As always, I want to recommend going to the Cheeky Scientist blog article. We have a lot of great articles out. Just go to cheekyscientist.com slash blog. Escaping bad academic advisor, seven things you can do as a PhD. This is a topic that's come up quite frequently. Recently, it was uh, Mental Health Awareness Day. This is an article that we wrote in response to a lot of your questions. We have a great industry spotlight from Alessandro Nesti. And our, currently, our top trending article is PhDs have to know these five facts about medical science liaisons. Continues to be one of the most popular fields. So with that, I'm going to bring on Mary Truscott, and we're gonna go through the show me the data section. 
Hi, Mary. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Isaiah? Good. Let me turn up the volume here. That'll be better. All right. So we have Mary on and we're going to talk about the data behind uh, today's show. So onboarding, what, what have you heard from other associates, other PhDs in terms of how they change before and after getting hired? What do they come back to you with? What do you notice just in the group, the questions that come up, things that you see in spotlights um, about how their mindset shifts and, and how they turn the corner into that industry position? Yeah, I see just a lot of, um, I guess people can be sometimes really surprised that uh, there is sort of teamwork. It's a positive environment. Um, the goals that are set for them, they're, they're, the pace is quite fast, um, but the support they, they receive when getting up to speed, they say is actually you know, surprisingly good. The structure in place, if it's a bigger company, we hear that quite a bit. Um, yeah, and that's a good term. That's a good term to think uh, to phrase it with support, really. I think a lot of us in academia, we're used to not having that support when it comes to getting projects and tasks done. There's less funding, less people in many cases. It's more of an independent environment. But what I, I really think has been beneficial for a lot of PhDs going into industry is it's more interdependent. It's not, you know, what a lot of PhDs are afraid of, they get scared, like you're just going to be told what to do. And it's, and you're, gonna, you're not going to have any freedom whatsoever. You're not going to get to own any tasks. That's definitely not true. Um, you're gonna, you, you're, you get to have your dependence. If anything, it's, a, it's seen as valuable. We've actually shown studies recently where putting like team player and overplaying that card on your resume or LinkedIn profile can hurt your chances of getting a callback because employers are more and more wary of people who can't work autonomously, who can't get things done on their own, who aren't self-starters, who aren't self-motivated. They don't want to hire that person who I'm sure all of us have worked with on a small group project, maybe, you know, in high school or something where you did all the work or two people in the group did all the work. And then there's the one person who did no work, but got an A anyway, right? That's what they want to avoid on their teams. So independence is valued, but of course you have to be able to really assimilate into the team culture and environment and, and be able to work with the team to get even more done than you could on your own. Right, right. You're part of you're part of a bigger thing, but you're you have to get your part done. Yeah, everyone's relying on you. Yep. Good, good way to put it. Okay, so we're going to jump to the show me the data, and what we want to show here is just some trends and kind of introduce a little bit more of the topic of onboarding. This is going to be a, a brand new topic to most of you, so I'm going to make my screen a little bit bigger here. Let me see if I can do a view. So we have some of our researchers pull together data based on. Uh, the radio show topic. And, and here, of course, we're talking about onboarding and why it's important. Uh, we're looking at a 2009 study by the Aberdeen Group. They found that 86% of their respondents felt that a new hire's decision to stay with a company long-term is made within the first six months. Now, you might be like, this is 2009, but we've seen the other studies. It, the number is consistently high. Very often, it's actually higher than 90%. And the time length is shortening. So not just six months, but within the first few months, whether or not a hire stays has to do with how good the onboarding process is. So we're going to be going back and forth between looking at the onboarding process as, you know, from your point of view as a job candidate, what do you need to do, but also from the employer's point of view. And the shift that I want you to make is thinking that the, the ball is in your court also in a sense where employers have to do a good job onboarding you to keep you, especially in today's hiring market, retention really matters. So they're going to do everything that they can to get you to onboard, which means that if the onboarding process stinks, you can come to a manager and ask for more support. And you should be doing this because employers care about it. They're not going to be uh, upset at you because you're asking for more 
more resources. A survey by uh, Bamboo HR found that one third of new hires had to quit a job within six months of starting it. One third, that's a lot. Between 16 and 70% uh, of them uh, left between the first week and the third month of starting a new job. Uh, the average company is losing one to six of their new hires each month for the first three months. Did these numbers surprise you, Mary? Yeah, I mean, you don't think about it if you haven't been in an experience where you start at a company and there's no structure, there's no one training you, you don't know what the expectations are. I mean, it makes you feel possibly not valued and, and it makes it challenging to be productive. So, yeah. And so, and, and so I always bring myself back to, because as a PhD, you're probably set to uh, try to impress and hit the ground running on your end. And you're going to be thinking about right away, what can I do right after I get hired to execute and impress the best? And very uh, commonly, one of the best things you can do is go through a period of what I call is deep observation, like learn about how things work, learn about the power structures are, learn about uh, how the departments operate, learn about uh, the chain of communication within your department, who you're reporting to, who that person is, the culture, like you have to learn, you have to observe. And as a PhD, you're uh, of course equipped to do this, but think about that more, especially during the first few weeks, than trying to just go and do something. Cause very often, and I've had this happen to me, one of my first jobs, I came in and I just wanted to prove myself so bad because we're PhDs, right? So that's how we think. And I just kept doing stuff. And more often than not, I had somebody tell me, you know, that's not how we do it here. Or they had to correct me. And it led to more issues than if I would have just asked more questions and just been more enthusiastic to learn to do things their way. Uh, that support is there. You're probably, you're not used to it in academia, but um, there, there are structures in place to help you learn the way to do things at a particular company. And that's something that our authors are going to tell us about. So we're looking at a few other figures here related to the studies we just discussed. Effective onboarding helps employees form bonds within the organization at a higher and faster rate. This, of course, benefits the organization. Uh, so 18x commitment to the organization. Employers who felt their onboarding was highly effective were 18 times more likely to feel highly committed to their organization. Okay, so employees, right? If you thought the onboarding process was great, you're gonna be more committed. Again, this is just showing that relationship to why employers care about this and, and why you should care about it too. Connectedness at work, 91% of those who received effective onboarding feel strong connectedness at work compared to only 29% of those who had ineffective. So that's a pretty big discrepancy, Mary. Um, Again, what are you hearing from our PhDs? And we've had, a, we've had a lot of examples of really both, right? People who get a new job and they just love it. It's amazing. They can't stop talking about it in the group. And then others, right? And I would say it's more rare. They get on and they're like, just not a good fit at all. Not what I thought, you know, horrible onboarding. What, what are the, some of the things that you hear and that maybe have surprised you in the right. group? Yeah, I think, I mean, it boils down probably to two things. It's do they have the tools to get the work done and do they understand the culture? And so we, we hear some stories about both, like, you know, not, not having the tools they need to get the work done and not even knowing necessarily what the expectations are. And sometimes that can be the way, you know, the team is managed and you don't always get a sense of that in an interview situation. Mm. Um, you know, you, you're probably doing your networking and, and talking to people at the company, but if, you, if they don't feel like they're part of the bigger picture and able to get things done, um, it can make them feel, feel pretty vulnerable and concerned. You hear that, yeah. No, I, I'm glad you brought that up. And, and just finally, the, 
the culture integration is the last figure. And we're, we're just looking at, for those of you listening by audio, three different uh, pie charts here. And it just shows a similar discrepancy. 89% of those who received effective onboarding felt strongly integrated into the culture compared to 59% uh, 59 who don't. Now, I can tell you the, the first three jobs I had in industry when I was hired, I showed up at the office and got some confused looks. And this is still what happens at a lot of, a lot of companies. I went over to somebody who was probably put in charge of maybe training me that day, that day or a couple days before. And I got, uh, I went down to like IT and got like a computer and stuff that looked like it had been used for 30 years. And it just wasn't a great process. Some companies do it very, very well and they're putting more effort into this, but just, you know, if that's your first experience after getting hired, what does it say about how valuable you feel? And, and so if, you can communicate with a company about how you can better integrate into the culture, how you can better onboard. If you can ask them during the interview process, what is, what is the onboarding process look like? So if I started tomorrow, right, future pace, then we talk a lot about this during interviewing. If I started tomorrow, what are the first few things that would happen? You know, who would be training me? This is something that a lot of you don't ask about at all. And it can give you great insight into whether or not you're a good fit for the company. Um, so this is some of the stuff that we, we are going to discuss and address today. So uh, related studies uh, show that within the first six months, 23% uh, said, so this is just recapping, 23% of the respondents said receiving clear guidelines to what my responsibilities were would have helped them uh, stay on the job. So of those who left. Now, this is something I wanted to bring up because I think it's a, a very important point. A lot of people leave jobs, hate their jobs right after they start when they're not clear on what to do. And this is something you just alluded to, Mary. Can you talk more about why you think this is? You've heard from you know, thousands of PhDs in our association. Why is it so important, especially to a PhD, to know what your role is and how to achieve in that role? Well, I mean, we talk about people getting in the weeds, right? We want to know what the big picture is and what the goal is, because no matter what, there's some learning right. um, and getting used to things, but you really want to know what your target is, what your goal is. Um, and if you don't have that, you, don't, you can't feel confident about what you're doing, right? Yeah, and, and so we're showing a figure here, again, for those listening by audio, uh, it's five different bar graphs, and the title of the figure is Respondents Who Left Within the First Six Months. What would have helped them stay on the job? I love this, very clear, very easy to understand. Again, 23%, the highest level uh, uh, in terms of the bar graph and the respondents said, receiving clear guidelines to what my responsibilities were. This echoes other studies we've shared in previous radio shows saying that the key to key, not just retention of an employee but of their happiness and morale is clearly knowing what their role is now this is something that even large companies struggle with when they have very clearly defined parameters uh, smaller companies uh, startups certainly you might have to wear many different hats but consistently trying to gain clarity on your role um, is crucial and that's something that you have to take the reins of too you can't just sit around and assume that it's all gonna be given to you because a lot of employers clearly struggle with this. To constantly ask, what do you want me to do here? What are your expectations here? Ideally, you'd ask this before you get hired, but certainly during the onboarding process. 21% said wanted more effective training, probably so that they can understand what their responsibilities were. 17% uh, said a friendly smile or helpful coworker would have made a difference. That's pretty surprising. Um, I'm gonna touch base with you on that in a second, Mary. 12% said recognized for their unique contributions. And then 9% said more attention from 
and manager and coworkers. So what are, I see kind of two trends here overall, Mary, what, what do you see from this? Yeah. Either not knowing what you're doing or people not knowing what you're doing and, and helping you feel part of things. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. as you onboard, think of those two things. How can you facilitate that on your end? Because we always want to talk about personal responsibility here, right? You can't do, you can't repeat the same mistakes that we made in academia. We can't just assume the system's going to take care of us. We can't just assume that we're going to get the mentorship or the guidance we need or the jobs are going to be there. No matter what company you do from here on out, especially if you've gone through our, our association, you have to take the reins of your career. And now that you have this knowledge, say, okay, well, I know it's going to lead to disappointment and to me not fitting in and me even wanting to leave this company is if I don't, if I'm not clear on what my responsibilities are and if I'm not engaged with the team. And that's why a, a big part of what we're going to, and both those things are going to be discussed uh, with our guests who will be coming on shortly, but you need to understand that and, and hopefully do your part uh, to engage, uh, to understand. So the cost of a bad hire, I love, I love studies on retention just because again, it shows it helps you just feel more empowered, right? Because it's not just you begging for a job. Like companies are trying to find high-level talent like all of you PhDs and they want to retain you and they're spending a lot on it. So uh, just in the U.S. Department of Labor, uh, the cost of bad hiring can equal 30% of the individual's first year of potential earnings. We talked about how many thousands of dollars it can cost just to bring on somebody, let alone the onboarding process. There's a lot of great figures here, uh, a lot of great studies that just show, again, tens of thousands of dollars especially if you include man and women hours of training of the onboarding process, let alone the hiring process and flying you out for the interviews, all of this stuff. Um, there's a very specific figure. It costs 7,000 to replace a salaried employee, 10,000 to replace a mid-level employee and 40,000 to replace a senior executive. Now I can tell you for most of you PhDs, it's going to be in the realm of tens of thousands of dollars because a lot goes into hiring. And if you've onboarded and you've started to work there and then you leave, that knowledge can disappear too. All of that training can really disrupt a team to have somebody come in for a few months and then leave. That hurts the morale of the rest of the company, lowers productivity. A lot goes into this. A couple more uh, uh, data points. Replacing a supervisory technical, right? As PhDs, we all have that technical expertise. Uh, or management personnel can cost from 50% to several hundred percent of the person's salary, right? So the, the figure I always quote is it can be is about $60,000 to fully hire and onboard somebody. It is expensive, that's, that's the major takeaway here. Uh, most recent figure, 27% of employers reported a bad hire, uh, said that the bad hire cost more than $50,000. Um, this is a career builder survey of 6,000 hiring managers and HR professionals. So again, close to that 60,000. Mary, does this surprise you of how expensive it is? I mean, you've seen it, you know, as we've hired people here, it, a lot of effort goes into it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, a figure that's coming up is going to blow your mind even more. It's uh, so there are just so many factors, right? There's the time lost when somebody leaves and replacing them, the time it takes to train them. Either it's an HR person who's, you know, you're paying them to do the training or an employee who's not doing their work to train somebody. Uh, it's just all the factors put together. Um, when you yeah. add them up, it's, it's, it's extremely expensive. And I love this because somebody was challenging me on this, of course, because PhDs, we challenged each other a couple days ago. And it's like, it's not $60,000. No way. It is. It's expensive. Look at this. 57968 average cost of a new employee. 75% of the demand for a new employee is to simply replace workers who have left the company. 
75% of the demand for new employees, right? So think about that. Three out of the four of people who are hired is just to replace employees who left. Retention matters, especially for companies, small, mid-sized, fast growing. As you start looking for investor funding, if you start looking for people to merge with acquisitions, et cetera, you know what they look at now? Retention rate. It is a huge, hugely important metric uh, for companies as they're being evaluated now, uh, which is which is really fascinating. So that's all we have time for. Everybody say hi to Mary. Mary, Hello. thank you for going to show me the data section. Uh, any you. last thoughts in terms of retention? What, what do you think about that um, last figure in terms of how, many, how much effort goes into just replacing employees? What do you think the fix is? The, to do that well, obviously to train them well so that they stay, um, mm. work to get good systems in place so that this sort of knowledge drain or loss of knowledge uh, doesn't happen. Um, just mm. to, to actually stop and think about it, right? That's, I'm, and we talk about change management. Um, that's yes. a lot of change, right? So all those variables that go into that um, should definitely be considered. Right, and, and on your end as the job candidate, this is a great area to showcase yourself as a leader. If you start showing that you care about fitting with the culture, about understanding your role, uh, and you do it in a, you know, obviously a non-nagging or annoying way, but uh, a, a way where you're trying to help improve the process, it's a great way to stand out during that, that initial few months. Mary, thank you. Please thank Mary in the thank chat you. box if you would. Great to have Mary on. Lots more to talk about today. I'm gonna share my screen and what we're gonna do is we're gonna go th through a short intro for our first guest here, uh, who many of you know, Don Asher. This is our little bio that we do, but I'm gonna show his LinkedIn page. I'm gonna show his books. Don has come on two radio shows previously. He's done training webinars for all of you who are in the association, specifically on negotiation, but we're gonna to get to hear something new and exciting from Don here. He has a, a ton of expertise in terms of onboarding. He's worked with many of the top companies around the world, top job candidates to help them onboard, and we're gonna get his uh, first, first person uh, tips here. So Don is an internationally recognized author and speaker on the topics of careers in higher education. Uh, in America, he's known as America's job search guru, guru and was named career mastermind by the award-winning portal Quint Careers. He has 12 books, some of them I'll show, including Cracking the Hidden Job Market, The Overnight Resume, How to Get Any Job, Who Gets Promoted, on and on. He has a best-selling guide to getting into graduate school, even graduate admission essays. Perfect. Don recently got his PhD too. So you can congratulate him. You know, it's, it's still soon enough to give him congrats in the chat box now. Uh, he's been a columnist for US Airways Magazine, an education columnist for MSN. He's written for Wall Street Journal's careerjournal.com, collegejournal.com, college.munster.com, munster.com, careerbuilder.com. And you can see all these other journals as well. He's a featured speaker in uh, over 150 times per year, including recent tours in Canada, Mexico, India, China, South Korea, Ireland, and Germany, where he spoke on international career trends and the borderless career. This is Don Asher's LinkedIn. I'm going to say it for those of you listening by audio, linkedin.com slash IN, like the IN LinkedIn, uh, dash Donald Asher, D-O-N-A-L-D-A-S-H-E-R. Connect with him. Say hello. I'm a PhD too. So he knows you came from Cheeky Scientist Radio. Uh, and I'm sure he'll connect back with you. Uh, very excited to also share his website. Go to donaldasher.com. You can see what he's doing, all of the executive coaching that he does, uh, articles that he's published, books, how to negotiate uh, your salary, which I know many of you are doing. There are two books that I highly recommend that I want to show. 
uh, Don might have others for us to show too. Uh, second edition, who gets promoted and who doesn't and why? 12 things you'd better do if you want to get ahead. Excellent book. You can get this now. It's on sale. The Kindle price is anyway for $9.99. Great gift too. And then this book, I love this book uh, as well, especially the cover. How to get any job, life, launch, and relaunch for everyone under 30. So if you're a graduate student under 30, great book for you or how to avoid living in your parents' basement. I just like this because it's great for those of you who have never worked in industry and are trying to make that first transition. It has uh, Don's playful uh, attitude throughout the book and his incredible insights. So definitely check out those two books. We'll put them in the post-show notes and we're gonna bring on Don now. Get his camera set up here. All right, Don, you should be able to start your camera. All right, there you go. We just got to get you off mute. There we are. How are you? I'm great, Isaiah. Can you hear me? I can. Thanks for being here. Good to see it's you again. It's my greatest pleasure. So I'm very excited to talk to you today because this is the first time that we're going to get a chance to hear your insights in terms of onboarding. So you, I, I know you were here for that, that show me the data section. Can you help us understand in the basic sense what is onboarding and why it's important? Well, I, I always like to differentiate onboarding uh, from orientation and from acculturation. And I think it's really easy to understand the differences. So, um, you know, orientation, I call badges and benefits. Where do you park? Where's your ID come from? What keys do you have? What's your password for the internet? Things like that. So uh, that happens in the first day or three. And, and a lot of people think that they're done and that orientation takes care of things. Onboarding is when you acculturate to the overt norms of the organization. The, the written rules. And uh, so there's some, some perils in onboarding, which we'll get to. Uh, and then a couple of things you need to do with your boss almost right away. Uh, and you alluded to this quite a bit when you're talking about how do you get up and running? How do you get to be able to start to do work that people accept? That's all part of onboarding. But you're not done until you get to acculturation. And the interesting thing about acculturation is you acculturate not to the rules, not to the regulations, not to where you're supposed to park. You acculturate to the people and the norms, the unwritten rules. And once you know the unwritten rules, then you're a member of the organization. So you're not done until you get through all of those, orientation, onboarding, and acculturation. Yeah, and I love those three parts. And I remember reading that. Um, I think you sent it to me once, but I think it's also in one of your books. And so yeah. the acculturation process, I mean, obviously the word culture is into in it. Yeah. Um, where do you see people struggle the most in terms of these three areas as, as somebody who's worked with a lot of academics or getting their first job, yeah. <laughs> where are the sticking points, right? Well, the, the biggest problem is thinking that the rules are what you're supposed to do. <laughs> so <Yeah>. with PhDs <laughs> in particular, a lot of PhDs, they want, they want to know the rules and they want to follow them. But in organizations, the rules, that's step one. That's like the baby step. Uh, and so they don't get that you have to acculturate what the other people do. Uh, so I'll just, I'll just give you an example of a norm from Wall Street. On Wall Street, you typically don't leave the floor until the senior person on that floor goes down in the elevators. So if the senior person works till 520, you work till 520. If the senior person works to 545, you work till 545. But the minute that senior person, the elevator doors close behind her, then everybody clears out. Now, no one's going to tell you that, but that's a norm. That's a completely acculturated norm. 
and so I think that it's important, in particular for PhDs, to realize they're not done just because they have a badge and someone told them where to park. They're not done. That's the beginning of, of yeah. trying to figure out how to succeed in that organization. So really, you're talking about the unspoken rules. And yeah. you, what you're alluding to is that PhDs are very literal, which we are. So, <laughs> so how can we, now that you're a PhD yourself, right, uh, you can really be uh, very direct here. Uh, how, how can we get better at finding the unspoken rules when we're very literal? We like to read, you know, read through things. If it's not on paper, yeah. we don't really follow it. How can we be more aware? Well, let's start by figuring out how to get you a work buddy. Um, so uh, I did an article once on well-designed uh, programs for mentoring. Now this, uh, so I want to encourage all of our listeners, do not use the word mentor. That, that's just going to get you into trouble. The word mentor, you should avoid, but you do need a work buddy. And so the best uh, relationships with a work buddy, they're not in your reporting structure. Uh, so it's not your boss or not a subordinate, not your boss's boss. Uh, now, with these new uh, matrix uh, reporting structures, it can sometimes be hard to find somebody that's more senior, but not in your reporting structure. You need someone you can call up and say, hey, what do I do about this? Or what's the right response to that? And so your work buddy, you might look through the list of people at the company and find a PhD. And just say, hey, you know, just got hired, came out of the academy, uh, you know, been a postdoc for three years, not really sure how industry works. It would be okay if I asked you a question from time to time. So uh, you have to find your own. Uh, mostly PhDs will have to find their own. Now, well-designed mentoring program, they'll do this. They'll assign somebody that's supposed to work with you and answer these types of questions. Uh, but my advice to people is don't wait for the org. Find your own. Call it a work buddy. Don't use the word mentor. Don't make it a program. And that'll give you somebody who can help you see what you should do. And I want to give everybody a warning. When you join a company, there's going to be somebody come up to you and want to be best friends forever, okay? And they're, they're going to just glom onto you. You're like new fresh meat in the organization. And I want to encourage you, keep your uh, arm's length from people that are overly friendly, overly friendly right off the bat, because they're like that possibly sometimes because they're like the unpopular kid and you're new. And so they're you want to keep a little distance from that person who is overly friendly because there may be a reason they're overly friendly until you can get the lay of the land and they may not give you the best advice. Mm. So you want friends. So you might want to say, Oh, I want to be friends with this person because they're super friendly, but they may be a pariah to the other employees. So at least keep your eyes on the horizon until you see who gets along with whom and who is admired and who is respected. That's a weird piece of almost very abstract advice, but no, I came I, across that. I came across that in interviews. The first person that came up to me, they were so friendly. Then I found out nobody liked them and all their advice was bad. Yeah, or they, they've had a difficult time with the company or, you know, were the ones that weren't getting their work done and so forth. Right. So this is the part that's fascinating to me, and I think it's fascinating for a lot of PhDs, is figuring out that because a lot of times there's not just a rule book or there's not something pointing about, hey, you need to do what this person says or follow what this person says or here's the unspoken rules. So what would you recommend in terms of, I guess, adapting in as best you can in a stepwise process through that acculturation phase? So yeah, you've gone through your orientation, yeah. you got the badges, all this. What, what, where, where to start? Where do you go next if you had to put it down into a protocol? Okay, so first thing I want to tell everybody, it's a thing called the prime directive, okay? And if you've never been in industry, you don't know this. If you've been in industry, you know it. It's in your DNA. The prime directive is always take care of your boss, always make your boss look good, 
never go over your boss's head without explicit permission. That's the prime directive. So we know from robotics, the prime directive is don't harm humans. So the prime directive from employees, don't harm your boss, okay? Because, uh, and, and so people join a company, uh, this happened to a friend of mine's son, he joined a company that famously advertised, we have an open communication plan. CEO had a desk on the floor with all the other people. Uh, and, and so he believed this. So after he was there about six months, he goes over and lays out everything that was going wrong in his department to the CEO because he believed this PR, this idea that, hey, the CEO, anyone can talk to the CEO. He almost got fired. His boss put him in a box and didn't give him any information again. It took him like another six months before anyone would let him do anything. So that's an example of reading the rule and thinking the rule applies, but the rule was in conflict with the prime directive. The prime directive, nothing ever beats the prime directive. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of something, uh, I think that when you come into an organization, you need to get uh, a handle on uh, right away. So, if you, so this is great. And I'm guessing a lot of PhDs are thinking, and I think you can help us weed through this, like, well, this is, this is silly. I don't want to do this. This is what I hate about industry, right? The fact that there's these business rules and you have to obey people. This is why I went into academia in the first place. So you being both an academic and a business person now as a PhD, can you help us navigate this and get on board with it? Like, why is this actually good for us? Why is it good for an organization? Well, it, it's the way organizations work. So all of these unwritten rules are like oil in an engine. They make everything work smoothly together. So uh, before we, we limit these rules, I think we need to learn them. I don't think they're that hard to learn. Uh, if you get a work buddy off the bat, and uh, also there's another thing you need to do right off the bat is sit down with your boss and have a, a, a conversation about communication styles and work deliverables. Mm. So communication styles, it, it, it's exactly what it sounds like. You know, how often do you want to talk to me? If I have a question, do I bring it to you or do I take it to someone else first? Uh, when you want my work, do you want it to be in a final stage or can I show you drafts? That's that you literally sit down with your new boss and you kind of walk through this. So it's communication styles and work deliverables. What do you want my work to look like? Um, you know, if, if something is due on a Monday, is that a hard and fast rule or is it a soft rule? And, and they, if you do this in the first week, they'll just sit down and lay it out for you. So it's not mysterious. I think a lot of times PhDs want to they want to think it's mysterious because they don't know this stuff yet, but it's not mysterious and you can get people to tell it to you. So uh, follow the prime directive, sit down with your boss and have that conversation about communication styles and work deliverables. And that'll get you started in an organization and avoid a lot of the worst things that can happen. Now, uh, let, me, let me just talk about a couple of soft skill things uh, very briefly, uh, Isaiah. Uh, one of them is, um, do you have to be at your desk? You would think that's a ridiculously simple question, but it's, yes. the answer is complicated. Then I'll give an example from higher ed because a friend of mine had a, a, an office person that was walking in and out of the office all day long. And so she sat her down and said, you're to be at this desk at 9 a.m. until noon. You're to be back at this desk before one o'clock and you sit right there until at least 4.30. And the woman said, well, you walk in and out all day. And my friend said, yeah, I'm the dean, okay? And when you become <laughs> dean, you can walk in and out, but you're to cover this office so that when people are looking for me, they find somebody. So that's, that's, you know, that's a work style issue. And I think it really matters, which brings me to my next point, which is excessive and early telecommuting. Excessive and early telecommuting is dangerous for people that are not acculturated. Mm -hmm. So if you're not acculturated yet, avoid telecommuting. 
get on the train, go down to the office and show face. Once you're acculturated, then you can start to work from a distance. And a lot of PhDs are so good at working uh, on their own that they'll reach for the telecommuting and they're avoiding a chance to rub elbows, learn some of the unwritten rules. So that's a couple of things to get people started, I say. No, I, I really appreciate you saying that because there are these unspoken rules around us all the time. And all of you who might be thinking this is weird or whatever, you're doing this every day in academia, I guarantee. Like you've just figured out which days not to bug your advisor or your PI. You've just figured out how much you have to be at your lab bench or your TA desk or whatever it is uh, to keep things running smoothly, that oil that Don uh, talked about. Um, so do you know of an ex any examples of companies doing this very well, doing the, I guess the overall, I know you broke it into three parts, whether it's the orientation or onboarding or acculturation process exceptionally well or alternatively uh, not so well. <laughs> I'd love to tell about the ones that do it not so well. Okay, let's do that. <laughs> I, I did a field study, an academic study of onboarding at a tech company, and I'm not allowed to say the name of the company, but they were, they were amazingly bad. It would be hard to write a, a case study of a more bad orientation and onboarding process. They were hiring people so fast uh, that uh, I interviewed someone who was hired. She showed up on the day that she was supposed to start work. Her desk was in a hallway. She had no phone and they couldn't tell her who her boss was. She didn't have a phone or an extension. So she sat at that desk the first day. That was, that's the worst I've ever, ever, ever heard of. She didn't even know her title. So she didn't know her title. She didn't have a phone. She didn't have internet access. She didn't have a computer. And she didn't know who her boss was. And that was her uh, introduction to this new company. Now, the company is wow. massively successful, but that was not their finest hour. Well, I think you bring up a good point because the size of the company will determine how, what this process looks like and how fast yeah. they're growing. When you said there's a strain on, on in terms of because it's growing so fast, there might be issues. So as let's return it back to the uh, job candidate now. What kind of questions should you ask during the interview to figure out what this process looks like and to prep yourself to onboard correctly? And then I'll, I'm going to move forward from there. Um, that's okay. Yeah, so I, I, would ask, um, I would ask people what success looks like. That's a really beautiful question. So if you're interviewing for a job and you say, well, suppose I joined your organization and I did a really good job and uh, I came on board, made major contributions and everyone was happy with me, what would that look like? And then listen carefully to what they say because they're about to tell you what they're looking for. So as a job candidate, that question, what would success look like? It's a kind of a golden open sesame into uh, what, are, what are their hiring criteria and what are they after? But they're also going to tell you how you do your job because uh, in that answer, and you can follow this up by asking detailed questions, yes. um, you know, what kind of work deliverables would I have? How much planning would go into it? Who could I talk to to get assistance when I needed assistance? Um, if a, a problem arose, how would that problem get addressed? All of those are questions about how you create success in that first year. So my favorite job question for a candidate is, what would success look like? And I, you know, the warning question is this one, what happened to the last three incumbents who held this position? And yeah. if all three of those people are in jail or left, <laughs> then we, we know question. there's a problem. We know there's a problem. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I think as a job candidate, a lot of times we think that it's all on us to make this work, but there's obviously the uh, employer's aspect because they want to retain you, et cetera. So how do you navigate that? How do you balance it? Let's say you walk into a situation and we've had a lot of PhDs do this. It's not good. 
something's off. They're not getting yeah. trained. You don't know what your role is, et cetera. What can you do on your end if you want to make it work? Well, you can keep asking questions, which is what a brand new PhD student is supposed to do on their first year of being a PhD student. You yeah. just keep asking questions until you get answers that help you get work done. Um, and so uh, who can I go to when I have a question? It, it's a very important, and you need multiple people. You need not just your boss, but what if you're out of town? Okay. What if the question's about finance? We're over here in production. What if the question's about finance? We're over here in engineering. What if the question's about my payroll? Yeah. So you get a list of people you can go to. And that work buddy thing, I'm serious about that. Every single person should, if they don't give you one, then you create one. Hey, can you name a PhD that's joined the org, uh, switched over from uh, the academy that I could, you know, just know I want to meet them face to face if I could. And, and you asked, how do you build that into the uh, the protection of yourself when you're a candidate, you can ask to talk to that person before you start. So it can be part of your part of your interview process. Hey, do you mind if I have a cup of coffee with this person? And they may tell you things that you need to worry about. So uh, the, the simplest answer to your question is you keep asking questions, but watch out for that prime directive. Uh, you know, you, you, you start walking around asking questions without your boss's permission, then the reason the prime director is prime is because nothing gives you permission except your boss to go around that. Yeah. So questions that indicate your boss is doing a horrible job, steer clear of those. That'd be best. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I always like to ask this question to reframe it. You've put you give us all the pieces, but let's say, I know these days are long behind you, but let's say you got hired at a top corporation. You're starting tomorrow. What is your plan for those first 90 days, uh, knowing all of the, the extra strategy uh, that, that's in Don Asher's mind? Okay, the first thing I would do is show face. Uh, so be early and stay late. Um, so uh, you know, people, yeah. they don't realize the value of that, especially if you're coming from the academy, you've never worked at a place where everyone knows what time you come to work. Uh, so they notice when you come to work. So if, if the company kicks off at eight o'clock, you need to be there at 740. So you need to have your coffee and be at your desk before the eight o'clock comes. Uh, and so that that's that's number one. And you cannot ever create a, a new reputation that you can't recreate that you can't walk that back. Yes. Uh, next, I would uh, take one for the team in the in the beginning until you learn otherwise. So, uh, and I got this from a recruiter who said he had hired this guy who carried around his job description. And anytime they wanted him to do something he didn't like, he would get it out and unfold it and say, where on this job description would this fit? And they would say, well, it doesn't fit. We all do things that are not on our job description. He wouldn't do it. Uh, so that's an example <laughs> of, a of someone. It was not a PhD. <laughs> Not a PhD, but yeah, that's an, a, so in the beginning, give a little to get a little. Um, yeah. Next, uh, if you're invited to a social engagement, go, uh, in particular early on. So mm -hmm. social engagements are coffee, uh, drinks after work. Uh, hey, we have a pickup soccer game. We play volleyball at lunch. All of those are social uh, opportunities. Uh, go to them, especially if you're new. Um, you may be shy. Lots of people are shy, uh, but but go to them and at least show a little face. You don't have to, for goodness sakes, you don't have to play soccer. You can stay on the sidelines right. and, and, and drink an iced tea and go, you know, go uh, engineers, go engineers. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but accept all invitations early on. Watch out for that best friend forever and ask lots and lots and lots of questions until you start to feel like you know what you're doing.
Fantastic. That, that was incredible. And this is why, uh, this is why you should all be checking out Don's book, um, which we'll show again here. Don, do you have time for one more question? I think we have somebody who wants to come on and ask one. I don't know if, if you yes, know, sir. if you were going to jump on by video or should I just read off your question? Um, Mary, is V don't going to come on by video or is she going to ask? It? I'll just read her question if I don't hear from you. Okay, let's bring you on, Vino. I think I can have you start your camera. It'll be a, a bit more engaging this way. And now you should be on the panelist side because it was right in line with, um, oh, there you go. It was right in line with your question uh, and your, or I should say your answer to showing up to uh, events because as you know, in academia, the events are a little bit different much more casual, I would say. The, the culture is different of the events. I guess it depends on the, 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 type, of, uh, the type of company. Uh, Vino, you should be able to start your video now. I made you co-host. Let's see if that works and you can jump on. I'm not seeing your audio button though. You might have to turn that on. We'll give it a few more seconds. Otherwise, I'll just read it off. And then if you happen to jump on, that works too. Zoom is always fun. All right, so I'm gonna, re I'm gonna read it verbatim here. Uh, as PhD students, new postdocs, there are like Friday pizzas, conferences, talks to network with our peers, et cetera. Um, in industry, there are work lunches, maybe casual Fridays, right? Maybe you meet up after work. Um, how do we adjust our academic mindset to the industry mentality? What are some of the differences you noticed between those kind of meetings? Because in academia, I would say from my experience, you don't go there expecting to have to put on a show to get promoted. Like you're just there. Industry, it's a bit different. What would you say? Well, the first thing I would say is that social engagements are not purely social in an industry setting. They're not purely social. Uh, so you go, you go to the pizza on, uh, in your labs. Um, you know, you don't have to worry if you say something untoward with someone who has a different PI. But when you're in the industry, everybody in that room has uh, a pecking order. And so I think the biggest thing to remember is that these are, these are not really social events. And I, I did a, a couple of articles once upon a time on uh, holiday parties and all the things people can do wrong at a holiday party. So basically a new PhD joining an industry, they need to understand that that person they're talking to, uh, you need, they need to see where they are in, in the uh, reporting structure and know who reports to them and who they report to and just be very politic by which I mean, don't gripe about your boss, don't gripe about your job. Uh, and, and there's other kinds of weird unwritten rules. Uh, this is a weird one, always pay for your drinks. So if you, if you go out with a group and, and you leave early, uh, you need to throw down more than sufficient money to cover your drinks and your tip. In business, you always throw down more. In higher ed, man, I tell you what, I've been caught with so many tabs in higher ed, but in business, everybody pays up. Uh, so that's a, an example of what you need to watch for. And my advice is be really careful with the alcohol. Uh, you know, have a couple of drinks and go home. Just don't don't make an evening of it. Yeah. Is that helpful, uh, Vino? Yeah, no, Dan, thank you so much. I'm a huge fan. I just wanted to ask another follow-up question if we have time. I was wondering, it would take like two yes. or three seconds. Two minutes, well, minutes, yeah, really. Um, so you touched about having a mentor. You, don't, you prefer using the, the term work buddy. Um, so for a new recruit, as you can imagine, you know, we're, I don't know, for me, I was super nervous when I joined the company and I really wanted to impress my boss and of course everyone else on the team, right? How do I go about asking people for favors without really adding value first? So in CSA, we talk a lot about adding value first mm -hmm. so that it's not so much of an ask when we, um, when we, you know, go into either a new company or a new environment or speaking to someone new. 
So as a new recruit, how would I actually go around finding a work buddy when, you know, they don't really know much about me? What, what are your thoughts about that? Well, they'll, they'll, they'll be responsive to the idea of you uh, asking them questions. Just say, look, I'm new here. You have a PhD. You came over from the academy. Uh, and you can ask HR to identify potential people like this. So you get like you get one freebie. And so once you get that relationship going, you got to give to get, as you say, uh, add value first. So uh, here's the thing. I'll tell you what, what happened to the whole concept of mentoring. All senior officers, in particular, underrepresented officers. So uh, if you're underrepresented, suddenly everybody wants to be your best friend that's, that's downstream from you. And it keeps interfering with your ability to do your work. And everybody got somebody that called them every day and asked them a dumb question. So uh, once you, that's what happened to mentors. That's why they went away. So don't ask dumb questions. Uh, and then here's the other point. Find something to give them. Uh, you, you know, here's our new tech specs. Uh, here's an article about your product I saw in the Wall Street Journal. Um, and it, depending on the culture of your company, you know, I would be sending them information uh, so that when you call, you and you don't ask anything in return for it, not even a thanks. Just saw this, thought you might find it interesting. In, uh, NNTO, which means no need to respond. NNTR is one of my favorite tags on an email. No need to respond. NNTR. And uh, so, you know, don't, don't become that person who sends them something every day. But I would start thinking about what they need. And then when you ask a question once in a while, uh, you're thought of as a give and take person, not just a take person. So, but you do get, you do, you, you have every right to ask for a work buddy. So don't feel bad about trying to find that work buddy in the first place. Then after that, it's like any other relationship, you nurture it, you water it, you help it grow. Excellent. Great. Thank you, Vino. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Ron, thank you very much. Great, great uh, questions and insights. Uh, best, best, uh, appearance ever on the Cheeky Scientist Radio Show. So thank you. Please thank Don in the chat box. Make sure you go to his website, donalasher.com. Check out his books on Amazon. We put the links in the chat box. We'll put them in the post-show notes as well. Don does still speak, right, Don, at different universities, institutions all around the world? 150 times a year. So where, and I know you've done some ones recently at, at a couple of universities. Is it the best place to contact you is through your website? Yeah, or just email me. I respond to emails all the time. And also, everybody should LinkedIn me. All right, LinkedIn, Don. Uh, again, we'll show his, uh, his LinkedIn uh, before the end of the radio show. Uh, oh, there you go. Lisa has a link, link in the chat box. We'll put it in the post-show notes. Don, thank you very much. Great to see you. My always pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Bye for now. Excellent. Okay, great. So we're going to move right along to bringing on our next very special guest, very excited to have on Michael Watkins, who I'm showing here. This is our, our quick little bio here. I want to introduce Michael. Very excited. Have been a big fan of his, his books for a long time. I, I read and reread his first 90 days over and over again uh, when I was first trying to get a job in industry. And certainly after I got the job, it refers to the first, your first 90 days uh, at a new company. Uh, he is the co-founder of Genesis Advisors, leadership consultant and author. Uh, he is the co-founder, again, of Genesis Advisors, a global leadership development consultancy based in Boston, Massachusetts, where uh, many of you on here today are located. Uh, he 
specializes in transition acceleration for leaders, teams, and organizations, coaches many C-level execs uh, of, of large global organizations. He is also a uh, professor of leadership and organizational change at the IMD Business School and previously was adjunct professor at INSED, I-N-S-E-A-D, and an associate professor at the Harvard Business School and the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Very, very impressive. He is the author of the international bestseller, The First 90 Days, Updated and Expanded, Proven Strategies for Getting Up to Speed Faster and Smarter, uh, ref referred to as the Onboarding Bible uh, by The Economist, and he has additional books as well. So I'm going to show you his LinkedIn profile too, something we always do at the beginning. For those of you listening by audio, linkedin.com slash IN slash Michael Watkins. Uh, it's Michael D. Watkins, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-D-W-A-T-K-I-N-S. And we're showing his uh, Genesis Advisor website here. We're putting this in the chat box. It'll be in the post show notes. Two books I want you to go get right now. Trust me, you will need this in your transition. The first 90 days, updated and expanded. Number one bestseller here on Amazon, bestseller in multiple other places, incredible ratings for a reason. This book will blow your mind. Um, also, his newest book, Master Your Next Move, hardcover, April 9th, 2019, very recent here. I think there's different, I don't know if the, the paperback's out yet, but I know you can get it on Kindle. Master Your Next Move, again, all related to today's discussion on what it means to make that transition to go uh, into industry. And with that, I'm going to bring on Michael now. Michael, I'm going to make you co-host. You should be able to start your camera and join us. Hey, folks. Hey, there. How are you doing? Hi. Hey. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Well, you know, I'm delighted to be able to do it. Very excited, actually, because this is a subject that's quite interesting uh, to me, and I'll explain why when we get into it. Yeah, I, that is my first question is, you know, why did you decide to write books about onboarding? Well, so, so, you know, I was teaching at the uh, Kennedy School of Government. I was very interested in organizational change sort of work. And um, I was teaching a particular class about a framework on change. And some very experienced leader raised his hand and said to me, you know, all very well, Michael, but um, you're assuming I know everything about the organization. You're assuming I'm, you know, fully knowledgeable about all the players and the strategy. And he says, you know, my experience has been I come in and I take a new job and I don't even know where the bathrooms are, right? And so how does what you're telling me help, right? And I'm kind of like, yeah, you know, very good point. And that was kind of the impetus, Isaiah, to start down the road of thinking about, you know, transitions, because the reality is you take a new job and you're kind of struggling your way up the learning curve. At the same time, you're trying to begin to have an impact, begin to establish yourself. It's hard, right? It's challenging. And it got me very interested and it continues to motivate me even today, many years later, uh, studying the, the subject. Yeah, and I just want to talk about your, your first, first book for a second because it had a huge impact on me and, and so many people. Were you surprised by the success of the first 90 days? Absolutely, right? So I, I describe myself sometimes as the accidental guru, right? I, I, it wasn't something I set out to do. I was very interested, and this is how I typically do things. I get interested in something, I dig in, I start thinking about it, I come up with ideas for it. And I think I just, you know, it's a beautiful thing when you catch a wave, right? And so I caught a wave. And, you know... Uh, there wasn't much out there at that point about how to do it. People were making more changes. You know, it was getting more complicated to do it. And I just happened to, you know, ride the wave. So, no, it was certainly not something I ever, you know, um, planned, certainly, or even aspired necessarily to do. I was quite happy being an academic and teaching and, you know, so, but here we are, right? 
Yeah, so, and I, I think a lot so, of our the people watching would say the same. Uh, academics, for the most part, their entire lives, um, and they're trying to make this transition. Of course, we see on our side over and over again, all they care about is getting the job, and I'm sure this is the same for any population. And then they get the job, and they have no idea what to do. They, they're excited, but then it's a black box. Is this something that you work with people on? Like, how do you help them absolutely. start to uncover it? What's the starting point to demystifying it? Well, so, so the, closest, the closest sort of parallel to the kind of people you're talking about who are coming out of academia is uh, I do a lot of work with healthcare companies and especially, you know, companies like Johnson & Johnson that have very serious R&D organizations and they bring a lot of people in from clinical and research organizations into this commercial environment. And then people really can struggle, right? <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> because the whole logic of the way those institutions works, Isaiah is just completely different, right? I mean, you've been trained often, if you're coming out of a research environment, to be a researcher, you know, be an academician, do good research. And it's not that, you know, places like Johnson & Johnson don't care about research, they care about it deeply. Yeah. But there's also this context of, look, we're, we're running a company here. There are commercial realities, right? Yes. We're highly regulated. We need to understand how you know, that works in terms of the regulatory environment. We care deeply about our reputation. You know, there's a lot of factors. So there's sort of that piece, and then there's the reality of navigating these complex organizations, right? And how, you know, I, I know this sounds bizarre, but academic you know, uh, organizations, as Byzantine as they can be politically, they're pretty simple in some senses, right? You've got departments, you've got faculty, you've got groups of people focusing on certain things. Of course, it's nothing like the complexity of a matrixed organization that's doing, for example, research and development around future, you know, pharmaceuticals. You know, I'm working right now with um, somebody who's the head of what's called the therapeutic area, right, at a big healthcare company um, dealing with immunology. And you know, yes, the people in that group are immensely talented immunologists, data scientists, right? Mm. But they've got to operate in the context of a much more complex, much more nuanced kind of environment organizationally than they would if they were in academics, right? And so mm. we actually, you know, have been doing a program for many years, helping people come in from research, academic, and clinical environments. So clinical would be, look, you're a doctor, you've been practicing a healthcare system, right? And now we're gonna bring you into the organization. We've been doing this program to help them basically make the transition because it's hard, right? You've kind of got to really reset your thinking uh, in a number of different ways. Part of it is just the navigating the politics of the organization, hmm. which are different, right? The logic, the values are different. You need to be understanding the culture is different, right? What is valued is not completely different, but it's different enough that you need to really understand um, you know, some, of, some of those differences. And so that's one big piece. The other thing I, I point to too is, you know, so for many of the people that, that are coming directly out of PhD programs, they're probably not coming into leadership positions right away, but it won't be long before they'll be moving into leadership positions of some form. Yes. Leadership in a, commercial environment, even one that's research intensive, is very different than leadership in, a, in an academic environment. And in fact, sometimes the very things that, you know, send you into academics are not the things that make you effective as a leader in a commercial environment, right? You know, you like to work a lot by yourself, right? You, you enjoy, you enjoy, you know, 
the quiet time of having your office, you know, and, and, and working away on your research papers. And yeah. all of a sudden you got people coming into your office, right? Maybe you're a little introverted, right? And all of a sudden, you know, you, you can't get the distance anymore. Yes. Does that make sense, Isaiah? So oh, it's absolutely. A, yeah. Some really big. You're teasing it out very, very well. And I think uh, that's exactly what a lot of us are struggling with. And I can, I can see in the chat box, um, at least when we, when we make that first transition. I want to stay on your first book a little bit longer, those sure, first 90 sure. days, because most people don't know what to do. You know, they see maybe a clause about a 90-day period, uh, probational period. They, they understand that there's, you know, what they think, what we hear the most is, I got to prove myself. I got to hit the ground yep. running and I just got to... Yep make an impression and that can sometimes lead to mistakes. So what would you recommend? Absolutely. If you could shorthand the first 90 days on what you should actually do and what the biggest mistakes yeah. are to avoid, what would you say? Well, let's focus on the mistakes for, for a sec, right? Because I think you're nailing something very important. And the very first piece of research I did long before I wrote the first 90 days in this area was to go out and ask people what were the most, the biggest common mistakes that people made going into new roles. Hmm. And what do you imagine they said? Well, they said things like trying to do too much too quickly yes. because you've got that drive, right? You want to prove yourself. You want to show that they made a good decision in hiring you. You're the new kid on the block, right? And, and oh, by the way, that pressure usually does not come from the organization saying, Isaiah, you know, for heaven's sakes, produce, man. You've been here for four hours. I mean, what, what, what's going on, man? You, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's internally generated, right? And it's the, same, it's the same sort of personality traits that often lead people to be academics in the first place, right? Very high standards, very demanding on themselves, right? A history of succeeding, you know? Maybe, not saying this is the case, but maybe a little insecurity in there someplace, right? And so those very same kind of, you know, qualities can lead you to start to try and, you know, push too hard too fast, try to demonstrate, you know, your worth too early where, <clears throat> You know, often the right thing to do is just to kind of let yourself soak into the environment, build those relationships, understand the organization. You know, the most basic question you should ask yourself when you take a new role is, how can I create value here? Mm. Right? What is, and you should keep asking yourself that question, right? How am I going to create value here? And you should be exploring that question. And, then, and actually, you know, it's funny, you, you know, you're making me think a little bit about it's a research question, right? So, so activate your research skills. You know, you get in there, treat it like a little research project, right? Where, where your job is to figure out what role are you going to play here that creates value and keep asking and keep clarifying, right? By the way, don't assume that what you've been told you're there to do is actually what you're there to do. Okay. Yes. I have little, my little jokes about this, right? And so, and I talk about the difference between recruiting and employment, right? And I said, you know, it, it's so challenging in the end because recruiting is like romance and employment is like marriage, you know? Yeah. And so during the recruiting process, we're falling in love. You know, I've got my best suit on. The organization is telling the best version of the story of why it wants you to come and join, the exciting things you're going to get to do. You know, um, I'll always do the dishes, I promise. <laughs> you know, I really like your mother, seriously, you know. And then there's the realities of you get into the environment and maybe it's a little different, right? Maybe you don't quite have the scope to do everything that you thought you needed to do. And so not assuming that everything you learn during that recruiting process is the full story. And it's not that anyone's lying, right? It's just, you've got our best suits on, you know? Yeah. And, 
so that's one piece. I think the other piece is getting a read on the organization before you go in, right? So it may not be a natural thing to do, but you should be asking yourself, what's the culture of this organization? And is that a culture I want to live in, mm-hmm. right? And by the way, it's not the culture people say they have necessarily, right? Because there's a natural inclination to talk about the culture we wished we had mm-hmm. as opposed to the culture we have. And so you've kind of got to do some triangulation. There's more online resources these days that can give you a glass door, an example, give you some insight. You can try to find people that have worked for the organization before because that culture fit is just so critical, right? And what you don't want to do is get into that job and find out, I really hate this place, right? I really hate these people. You know, it, it's a big problem if, if, if you do that. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate that because you kind of connected it, what you can do before and after getting hired, right? So what questions can you ask about culture, which we, we covered uh, throughout uh, today's show? Yep. And yep. how can you figure out those unspoken rules? That's really what you're talking sure. about. Right? For sure, right? And, and, and so I think it helps, first of all, to recognize that organizations can have very different cultures, right? I mean, you can assume that the culture you grew up in is kind of like the way it is, right? And the same is true of the organizations you know, you, you've grown up in. And if you've grown up in research environments, academic research environments, they have a certain culture. The culture of most large organizations looks nothing like that at all, right? The way status works in the organization, the way things are rewarded in the organization typically is very different, right? And so you want to ask yourself things like, what is valued here? You want to ask yourself things like, what are the behavioral norms that operate in this place, right? And and I'll give you a simple example, right? I mean, I, when I was doing my doctorate at Harvard, I was sort of somewhere between, you know, the engineering and economics and social science folks, right? And, you know, like an economics graduate seminar is kind of a version of armed conflict, right? I mean, you go in and you literally beat the crap out of each other, right? And then at the end, you smile and you move on, right? (laughs) You you do that in a company. You come in and you go, Isaiah, you know, what a stupid idea. I mean, making this up, right? But, you know, you clearly haven't thought things through, Isaiah, right? You know? You you know, people will not respond well in a different culture to that kind of behavior. And I'm not saying you do that going in, but I think it's just being aware that, you know, you need to tune in to what the behavioral norms of this culture are. Does the value system, you know, is it different? Does the way decision-making work? Is it different? Does the way influence work? Is it different? Is the way people behave in meetings different, right? The typical meeting of a you know, R&D team in a commercial environment is not an economics graduate center, right? I mean, it can look a little bit like it sometimes, but hopefully the point is clear, right? And I think that tuning into the culture, just recognizing things like there's a different language you often need to learn to speak. You know, every organization has its own acronyms, its own terminology, and if you don't understand that, you don't really understand what's going on, right? So. When I talk about going into organizations, you know, one of the most important things you do is, is accelerate your learning. Mm. It's the number one sort of foundation of an effective uh, transition. And I make a distinction between technical learning, cultural learning, and political learning. Technical learning, that's the products, the markets, the technologies, the strategies. Culture is how we do things here. Norms of behavior, symbols, you know, the way influence works. 
And then political learning is who has influence and why, right? How do decisions get made? If I want to have influence, what am I going to, to do here? And it's likely to be very different than, you know, the experience that you've had, uh, you've had previously. Does that make sense? Yeah, I love it. I love the way you broke it up uh, between technical, uh, political, and cultural. I mean, great, uh, great framework. I, I wanted to ask you one more question before uh, bringing up your new book. Well, just before you do that, there was, there was a, a comment on the chat that I just wanted yes, to, um, which I think is such a good question, right? So, you know, about informational interviews with people who work with the company and asking questions. And I would say absolutely with one addition, which is ask everybody the same question. Tell me about the culture here. How do things work here? And see if you get any consistency, right? Again, treat it like it's a research project, right? Are you getting consistency in the responses? Test it against the, the external viewpoints that you have, right? Are people you know, telling themselves a story and therefore you a story, right? Try to gain that kind of, that kind of uh, you know, insight into the culture and be really as thoughtful as you can because it can be such a profound driver of, in the end, whether you're going to be happy in that environment or not. Brilliant. Yeah, we've never talked about that, uh, using the same question, right? Eliminating variables. Great, great. Yeah, great I, I'm, I mean, I'm, I use similar methodologies when I go in and do organizational diagnostic work, right? So if I'm talking to a senior leadership team, I'm interviewing them individually and I'm asking questions like, how do you see the biggest challenges here? What are the biggest opportunities, right? Mm. How do you see our strengths? Yes. What do we need to work on? Right. If you're the new leader, what would you be focusing on? And you very quickly get a pattern, right? And, and you see things like, is there reasonable coherence in what this team is telling me? Right. Mm. If not, that's a problem. Mm. Is what they're telling me so coherent that they must be conspiring against me? Right? <laughs> yeah. You know, there, there's there's information, right? And and it, and, it's, and it's very much a kind of a an exploratory uh, mm. process. Excellent. And and. The, the, question, the, the question that I wanted to ask related to this, but I, I guess on a bit more of the how to get things done side practically mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. project management wise mm -hmm. is, you know, A, how is project management different in industry versus academia? You've been able to draw some great comparisons there. And then the idea of the first 90 days of being able to work your way to managing your own projects and being able to work your way to contributing to a team project. Why is that important to do yep. during th that initial period as well? So I'm going to get you to re-ask about the second piece in a minute, right? You, you know, I think that the academic environments I came out of, right? Typically you're going through a process of defining a project you want to pursue, pursuing grants to get that project funded. There's a lead investigation data, there's supporting investigators, there's a methodology mm. and so on, right? And that may seem complicated, but it pales in comparison to most of what goes on in commercial and R&D organizations, right? Because, you know, you're taking something from basically the clinic, right? Early stage, you know, tox testing all the way through the many phases of the clinical trials out into, you know, the regulatory environment and then, you know, additional indications. I mean, it's an area I know a reasonable amount about, right? And so, and, and the number of players involved in that, those projects is just so much higher. Mm -hmm. And those projects kind of, you know, get passed from group to group as you go, as you go through, right? And so what you're doing in the early stages in discovery in pharmaceuticals, I'll keep with the example, may be being led by a different group of people than what happens when you're actually taking a compound 
all the way, you know, hopefully the phase three trials and beyond into, you know, post, you know, approval processes. So, so you've got to sort of prepare yourself for a much higher level of organizational complexity hmm. and much fewer kind of clear boundaries around what you're doing in the end. Not that research projects are simple, right, in sure. academic environments, right? And so what it means is the project management skill set, I think, becomes much more important, right? Because just because of the complexity yeah. of what you're trying to, uh, to do. Yeah, that, that was exactly uh, the point I, was, I would hope we'd get to because part of the way to measure, I guess, your progress in an organization is your ability to integrate into that project management system or to carry a project. Correct. Or, or a key part of a project, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and so as you move through an organization, and this is where, you know, I know I, you've written this new book that's more about the next step, right? So you've gone yep. through the first 90 days. The next step is ideally getting promoted one way or another. And there's a lot of confusion from people who have never worked in industry on what that looks like. We get a lot of questions yep. on, okay, you know, where, where can you go laterally? Is it hard to go between departments? You know, if you start an R&D yep. because you have technical knowledge, can you get into yep. marketing or whatever? And then where do you go vertically? What, what suggestions would you have for novices? So I think you've got you've to make some fairly basic decisions kind of early, right? I mean, you know, if you really fundamentally want to be an individual contributor doing research at a high level, you can make a great career doing that, right? Yeah. Now you'll be only one part of the process. You'll be part of teams doing it, you know. It's a different story if you say, okay, I, I want to become a leader, right? Mm. And it's an even different story if you think you want to go beyond being just an R&D leader to being an organizational leader, right? And so there are very different career paths. But I think the fundamentals are really a kind of an understanding of what it is you think you want to do, you know. I, and there's some interesting side points to this, right? Because, I mean, sometimes the culture of science kind of denigrates managers in general, right? I mean, managers are the people that, you know, do the stuff. They're doing what they're doing because they couldn't be good, you know, researchers, right? there's a bit of an inversion that happens when you're in a commercial environment where often the very best people are out there leading the organizations in important ways. Right. And that's again, part of the culture, but I guess I just, you know, I mean, I'm assuming thinking of an example, um, someone that came out of, you know, a very high end uh, MIT research Institute and came into, you know, this pharmaceutical organization, because he wasn't satisfied basically doing the, the narrow project work. He wanted to have a bigger impact, right? He wanted to see his ideas, his microbiome work, go into you know, actual treatment and begin to have an impact in the world. Yes. That was a good reason for him to leave that environment and go you know, into the more you know, commercial environment. But it was a struggle, right? And then you get into that and you're, okay, you're, you're maybe running a research group or you're doing that sort of work. Now where? Right? Are you going to leave behind your technical expertise and start to do stuff? You know, that's a, a more general thing because that's a big decision, right? right. And often your own sense of um, identity can be very deeply rooted in that technical expertise, and it can be very disorienting and anxiety-provoking to say, "I'm going to kind of leave that behind." So I, I think that it's it's more um, it's really more a set of choices that you have to think about about fundamentally what do you want to do here. Yeah. yeah, really impressed with your analysis there because that's really what we see and I've ex even experienced myself, right? Because as you go into management, so a lot of people get out of academia because they want to have a bigger impact. They don't want to be running gels all day or writing code all day, whatever. 
And then yep. they get into management and they realize that they're not the ones responsible for the result anymore. They're not as tied to it. They have to Correct. manage people, which doesn't feel like they're getting anything done. And so, well, and, 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 and may, may not be respected by the people that they care about, right? Oh, you become a manager. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, <laughs> yeah. And so clear, 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 clear that you couldn't make it as a research scientist. So, yeah, no, I get it. You, you, you become a, a manager. Yeah. Isaiah, you know, I mean, you seem like a good guy, you know, and I'm, but I'm sorry, right? That this what has happened? happened to you. Yeah, exactly. With such <laughs> great promise, such great promise. And, you know, here, here we are, right? No, so, so I think it, it does get into really deep stuff like that, right? There was a question, I'm just sort of eyeing the chat window occasionally, yeah. right? There was a question related to project management, right? Yeah. There are now wonderful programs that can teach you about what's known as the project management body of knowledge. And if you're serious about being a project manager, you know, I, I had one of my people recently went through um, a program at the University of Austin, I think it was, that was specifically designed evening program, you know, certificate program to take you through what's known as the project management body of knowledge and certify you as a project manager. Tremendous credential to get. And she, you know, her capability just went up, you know, an order of magnitude by doing it's, that. It's amazing that there's like, you know, in that body of knowledge, eight different types of project management. I mean, whether it's, uh, you know, what is it? PK or agile or scrum. Yep. Fascinating. And uh, it, it is. And uh, I really think that the key takeaway here is be thinking long-term, just like Michael said, where do you want to end up? The short-term challenge might be there, especially as you get away from being the technician and more of uh, doing things more strategically. Like we talk about for our STEM PhDs, you might, you're, you're very likely not going to be the one doing the experiments. You'll be managing them or managing the people doing them or managing the yep. robotics doing them. Yep. So try to wrap your head around that. Yeah, I, I would add something to what you're, you know, sparking for me too is a decision about what size of organization you go into, mm. right? Because it's a very different thing. I was talking to someone recently who was a, he was very high end immunologist at a German um, university, you know, full professor chaired, but relatively young, and he went out and helped co-found a biotech, right? Wow. Because he had that sort of impulse, but operating in the environment of a small biotech is completely different than operating in the context of a behemoth of a you know large pharma and so maybe some thinking about the scale of the enterprise you want to be a part of um mm. would be something else i'd recommend you know you, you, the, the folks that are watching would would think about because you can make yourself very unhappy going into a large organization if that's not fundamentally what you do and i see many examples by the way of startups are that that are then acquired by you know big pharma oh, yeah and they're miserable right within you know i mean they've got the retention bonuses they need to see see the you know the, the time out but as soon as it's done they're gone right yeah. because the realities of operating in that kind of not bureaucratic but much more structured environment um yeah. can be really challenging there's a question about arts phds and so you know there i think it's really a question of um hooking yourself into a discipline or a function that can leverage those strengths, right? You know, so maybe it's communication, maybe it's writing, you know, maybe there's some things that you can do. The other thing obviously is to go to institutions where that skill set's valuable, you know, museum would be an example. So, but actually, you know, if the person who asked that question wants to add a, add a little more, it's Christine, I guess I'd be interested in what your 
your thinking. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I just, and I'm glad you brought that up, Christine, because it's important. The, this, what you're learning here, if you go into a, a, a career in something that's more arts, the same principles apply. It's not like project management becomes different no. all of a sudden. It's not like having to think ahead in your career becomes different or what you need to do to onboard to understand the culture becomes different. The culture changes, right? Yep. The type of business changes, the background changes, but the, the, the key principles are the same. Yeah, and for example, if you go into consulting, right, or you go into advisory work of some form or you get into marketing, right, that can be a completely... Um, yeah, perfect. Well, so, so Christine's making a great point, right? And, and so, and I've actually got a good example for you of this, right? It's not quite exactly, Christine, what you're after, right? But the point you're making there, which is really crucial, is do an inventory of what your training has made you good at. Mm. And are there ways to map that into commercial environments? So my wife was trained as a PhD policy analysis, you know, became a defense analyst, you know, did her doctorate at the Rand Corporation. And then got married, previous marriage, had some kids, moved to, you know, a small country where she couldn't really do what she was doing anymore, right? It was a neutral country. She wasn't a national. You know, she had to kind of give up that work. But what she knew how to do very well was research and writing, right? And so she started taking on research projects, eventually found an area of research she was really interested in, which is around how, helping people make expat transitions. Wow. wrote a very successful book, started a coaching practice. And I say this only because I think to Christine's point, what I would say is the clearer you are on what you're really good at mm. and the more you can get out there and figure out how that connects to the set of possibilities out in the world, the better, right? Mm. For, for my wife, it was, it was a completely, you know, eureka moment when she realized that she could take all those things that she learned to do while she was giving briefings at the Pentagon she was and repurposed that to do something actually that was pretty pretty interesting well said and uh for all of you you know what he's talking about transferable skills right not just focus on technical skills but the things you can transfer michael incredible to have you on thank you so much. really appreciate your time and no, it's a pleasure uh, and yeah I'm, I'm really excited to uh, read your new book I've, I've read the first 90 days Thanks. i got the new one uh please do me a favor and check out michael's books Seriously, highly recommended. I think after hearing the interview, you know you need to go get the first 90 days and then master your next move. Please connect, thank me, Mike. connect me with through LinkedIn if you've got questions. I manage my own LinkedIn, so I'd be happy to respond if it's helpful. Okay, But it's a pleasure, Isaiah, to spend a little bit of time with you. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Please thank Michael in the chat box if you haven't already for a, a phenomenal interview. Thank you for the insights, Michael. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure. All the best, everybody. Okay, so moving right along, we have some extra things to cover here uh, for our members only. If you're watching the live stream, this is where it ends. Hopefully you enjoyed the interviews. If you want to be the first to know when we have a new radio show, uh, so you can show up live or you can be the first to get the podcast when it comes out uh, as well. If you want to recap what Michael said, what Don said, uh, hear the show again, go to CheekyScientist.com. CheekyScientist.com. There's a blue button on that website where you can get our free resume guide. When you do that, you will also be the first to know about our radio shows. Uh, you can go to Apple or SoundCloud uh, or uh, what's the other one now? Spotify and uh, subscribe to our, our podcast. 
And if you want to learn how to get into industry, if you are looking to transition into an industry job as a PhD, go to phdsgethired.com. If you put your name and email on that list, you'll get all of our resources that are free sent directly to you, all of our invitations to our uh, live webinars that are free as well. And don't forget tomorrow, November 14th, 1 p.m., 9 p.m. Eastern Standard, Standard Time, a brand new webinar on LinkedIn. I'm going to cover a handful of things I've never shown before, brand new things that are on LinkedIn that can help you specifically as a PhD. We're even going to dig into not just LinkedIn recruiter, what employers see, but LinkedIn talent insights. So go to phdsgethired.com, sign up there, and we will see you hopefully at the webinar tomorrow. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional.